Section 55 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 45. Louis Fourteenth, His Wars and His Reverses. Part 5. The campaign of 1711 was everywhere insignificant. Negotiations were still going on with England, secretly and through subordinate agents. Manager, member of the Board of Trade for France, and for England, the poet Prior, strongly attached to Harley. On the 29th of January, 1712, the general conferences were opened at Utrecht. The French had been anxious to avoid The Hague, dreading the obstinacy of Heinsius in favour of his former proposals. Preliminary points were already settled with England. Enormous advantages were secured in America to English commerce, to which was ceded Newfoundland and all that France still possessed in Acadia. The general proposals had been accepted by Queen Anne and her ministers. In vain had the Hollanders and Prince Eugène made great efforts to modify them. St. John had dryly remarked that England had borne the greatest part in the burden of the war, and it was but just that she should direct the negotiations for peace. For five years past the United Provinces, exhausted by the length of hostilities, had constantly been defaulters in their engagements. It was proved to Prince Eugène that the imperial army had not been increased by two regiments in consequence of the war of the emperor's ambassador, M. de Gala, displayed impertinence. He was forbidden to come to the court. In spite of the reserve imposed upon the English ministers by the strife of parties in a free country, their desire for peace was evident. The Queen had just ordered the creation of new peers in order to secure a majority of the upper house in favour of a pacific policy. The bolts of heaven were falling one after another upon the royal family of France. On the 14th of April, 1711, Louis Fourteenth had lost by smallpox his son, the Grand Dauphin, a mediocre and submissive creature, ever the most humble subject of the king, at just fifty years of age. His eldest son, the Duke of Burgundy, devout, austere, and capable, the hope of good men and the terror of intriguers, had taken the rank of Dauphin, and was seriously commencing his apprenticeship in government when he was carried off on the 18th of February, 1712, by spotted fever, or rougeole pourpre. Six days after his wife, the charming Mary Adelaide of Savoy, the idol of the whole court, supremely beloved by the king and by Madame de Maintenon, who had brought her up. Their son, the Duke of Brittany, four years old, died on the 8th of March. A child in the cradle, weakly and ill, the little Duke of Anjou remained the only shoot of the elder branch of the Bourbons. Dismay seized upon all France. Poison was spoken of. The Duke of Orléans was accused. It was necessary to have a post-mortem examination. Only the hand of God had left its traces. Europe in its turn was excited. If the little Duke of Anjou were to die, the crown of France reverted to Philip V. The Hollanders and the ambassadors of the Emperor Charles VI, recently crowned at Frankfurt, insisted on the necessity of a formal renunciation. In accord with the English ministers, Louis XIV wrote to his grandson, quote, You will be told what England proposes, that you should renounce your birthright, retaining the monarchy of Spain in the Indies, or renounce the monarchy of Spain, retaining your rights to the succession in France, and receiving in exchange for the crown of Spain the kingdoms of Sicily and Naples, the states of the Duke of Savoy, Montferrat and the Mantuan the said Duke of Savoy succeeding you in Spain. I confess to you that, notwithstanding the disproportion in the dominions, I have been sensibly affected by the thought that you would continue to reign, that I might still regard you as my successor, sure, if the Dauphin lives, of a regent accustomed to command, capable of maintaining order in my kingdom and stifling its cabals. If this child were to die, as his weakly complexion gives too much reason to suppose, 
You would enjoy the succession to me following the order of your birth, and I should have the consolation of leaving to my people a virtuous king, capable of commanding them, and one who, on succeeding me, would unite to the crown states so considerable as Naples, Savoy, Piedmont, and Montferrat. If gratitude and affection towards your subjects are to you pressing reasons for remaining with them, I may say that you owe me the same sentiments. You owe them to your own house, to your own country, before Spain. All that I can do for you is to leave you once more the choice, the necessity for concluding peace becoming every day more urgent. The choice of Philip V was made. He had already written to his grandfather to say that he would renounce all his rights of succession to the throne of France rather than give up the crown of Spain. This decision was solemnly enregistered by the Cortes. The English required that the Dukes of Berry and Orleans should likewise make renunciation of their rights to the crown of Spain. Negotiations began again, but war began again at the same time as the negotiations. The king had given Villal the command of the army of Flanders. The marshal went to Marly to receive his last orders. Quote, you see my plight, marshal, said Louis the fourteenth. There are few examples of what is my fate, to lose in the same week a grandson, a grandson's wife and their son, all of very great promise and very tenderly beloved. God is punishing me, I have well deserved it, but suspend we my griefs at my own domestic woes, and look we to what may be done to prevent those of the kingdom. If anything were to happen to the army you command, what would be your idea of the course I should adopt as regards my person? The marshal hesitated. The king resumed, quote, This is what I think. You shall tell me your opinion afterwards. I know the courtier's line of argument. They nearly all wish me to retire to Blois, and not wait for the enemy's army to approach Paris, as it might do if mine were beaten. For my part, I am aware that armies so considerable are never defeated to such an extent as to prevent the greater part of mine from retiring upon the Somme. I know that river. It is very difficult to cross. There are forts, too, which could be made strong. I should count upon getting to Peronne or Saint-Quentin and there massing all the troops I had, making a last effort with you, and falling together or saving the kingdom. I will never consent to let the enemy approach my capital. Memoire de Villars, page 362. God was to spare Louis the Fourteenth that crowning disaster reserved for other times. In spite of all his defaults and the culpable errors of his life and reign, Providence had given this old man, overwhelmed by so many reverses and sorrows, a truly royal soul, and that regard for his own greatness which set him higher as a king than he would have been as a man. Quote, he had too proud a soul to descend lower than his misfortunes had brought him, says Montesquieu, and he well knew that courage may right a crown, and that infamy never does. End quote. On the 25th of May the king secretly informed his plenipotentiaries, as well as his generals, that the English were proposing to him a suspension of hostilities, and he added, quote, It is no longer a time for flattering the pride of the Hollanders, but whilst we treat with them in good faith, it must be with the dignity that becomes me. Quote, a style different from that of the conferences at The Hague and Gertreudenberg, is the remark made by M. de Torcy. That which the king's pride refused to the ill-will of the Hollanders, he granted to the good-will of England. The day of the commencement of the armistice, Dunkirk was put as guarantee into the hands of the English, who recalled their native regiments from the army of Prince Eugène. The king complained that they left him the auxiliary troops. The English ministers proposed to prolong the truce, promising to treat separately with France if the Allies refused assent to the peace. The news received by Louis the Fourteenth gave him assurance of better conditions than any one had dared to hope for. Villars had not been able to prevent Prince Eugène from becoming master of Quenoy on the 3rd of July. The imperialists were already making preparations to invade France. In their army the causeway which connected Marchienne and Landrecy was called the Paris Road. 
the marshal resolved to relieve Landrecy, and having had bridges thrown over the Scheld, he, on the 23rd of July, 1712, crossed the river between Bouchain and Denain. The latter little place was defended by the Duke of Albemarle, son of General Monk, with seventeen battalions of auxiliary troops in the pay of the Allies. Lieutenant-General Albagotti, an experienced soldier, considered the undertaking perilous. Quote, "'Go and lie down for an hour or two, Monsieur d'Albagotti,' said Villard. "'Tomorrow by three in the morning you shall know whether the enemy's entrenchments are as strong as you suppose.'" Prince Eugène was coming up by forced marches to relieve Denain, by falling on the rear-guard of the French army. It was proposed to Villard to make fascines to fill up the fosses of Denain. Quote, "'Do you suppose,' said he, pointing to the enemy's army in the distance, that those gentry will give us the time. Our fascines shall be the bodies of the first of our men who fall in the fosse. Quote, there was not an instant, not a minute to lose, says the marshal in his memoir. I made my infantry march on four lines in the most beautiful order. As I entered the entrenchment at the head of the troops, I had not gone twenty paces when the Duke of Albemarle and six or seven of the emperor's lieutenant-generals were at my horse's feet. I begged them to excuse me if present matters did not permit me to show them all the politeness I ought, but that the first of all was to provide for the safety of their persons. The enemy thought of nothing but flight. The bridges over the shell broke down under the multitude of vehicles and horses. Nearly all the defenders of Denain were taken or killed. Prince Eugène could not cross the river, watched as it was by French troops. He did not succeed in saving Marchienne, which the Count of Broglie had been ordered to invest in the very middle of the action in front of Denain. The imperialists raised the siege of Landrecy, but without daring to attack Villars, reinforced by a few garrisons. The marshal immediately invested Douai. On the 27th of August, the emperor's troops who were defending one of the forts demanded a capitulation. The officers who went out asked for a delay of four days, so as to receive orders from Prince Eugène. The marshal, who was in the trenches, called his grenadiers. Quote, this is my counsel on such occasions, said he to the astonished imperialists. My friends, these captains demand four days' time to receive orders from their general. What do you think? Quote, Leave it to us, Marshal, replied the grenadiers. In a quarter of an hour we will slit their windpipes. Quote, Gentlemen, said I to the officers, they will do as they have said, so take your own course. End quote. The garrison surrendered at discretion. Douai capitulated on the 8th of September. Le Quenoy was taken on the 4th of October, and Bouchard on the 18th. Prince Eugène had not been able to attempt anything. He fell back under the walls of Brussels. On the Rhine, on the Alps, in Spain, the French and Spanish armies had held the enemy in check. The French plenipotentiaries at Utrecht had recovered their courage. Quote, we put on the face the Hollanders had at Gerhoidenberg, and they put on ours, wrote Cardinal de Polignac from Utrecht. It is a complete turning of the tables. Quote, Gentlemen, peace will be treated for amongst you, for you and without you, was the remark made to the Hollanders. Hereditary adversary of the Van Witts and their party, Heinsius had pursued the policy of William III without the foresight and lofty views of William III. He had not seen his way in 1709 to shaking off the yoke of Marlborough and Prince Eugène in order to take the advantage in a peace necessary for Europe. In 1712 he submitted to the will of Harley and St. John, thus losing the advantages of the powerful mediatorial position which the United Provinces had owed to the eminent men successively entrusted with their government. Henceforth Holland remained a free and prosperous country, respected and worthy of her independence, but her political influence and importance in Europe were at an end. Under God's hand, great men make great destinies and great positions for their country, as well as for themselves. The Battle of Denain and its happy consequences hastened the conclusion of the negotiations. The German princes themselves began to split up. The King of Prussia, Frederick William I, who had recently succeeded his father, was the first to escape from the Emperor's yoke. 
Lord Bolingbroke put the finishing stroke at Versailles to the conditions of a general peace. The month of April was the extreme limit fixed by England for her allies. On the 11th, peace was signed between France, England, the United Provinces, Portugal, the King of Prussia, and the Duke of Savoy. Louis XIV recovered Lille, Aire, Bethune, and Saint-Venant. He strengthened with a few places the barrier of the Hollanders. He likewise granted to the Duke of Savoy a barrier on the Italian slope of the Alps. He recognized Queen Anne, at the same time exiling from France the pretender James III, whom he had but lately proclaimed with so much flourish of trumpets, and he raised the fortifications of Dunkirk. England kept Gibraltar and Menorca. Sicily was assigned to the Duke of Savoy. France recognized the King of Prussia. The peace was an honorable and an unexpected one. After so many disasters the King of Spain held out for some time. He wanted to set up an independent principality for the Princess des Ursins, or Camarera Mayor, to the Queen his wife, an able, courageous, and clever intriguer, all-powerful at court, who had done good service to the interests of France. He could not obtain any dismemberment of the United Provinces, and at last Philip V in his turn signed. The Emperor and the Empire alone remained aloof from the general peace. War recommenced in Germany and on the Rhine. Villars carried Speer and Kaiserlauten. He laid siege to Landau. His lieutenants were uneasy. Quote, Gentlemen, said Villars, I have heard the Prince of Condé say that the enemy should be feared at a distance and despised at close quarters. Landau capitulated on the 20th of August. On the 30th of September, Villars entered Fribourg. The citadel surrendered on the 13th of November. The imperialists began to make pacific overtures. The two generals, Villars and Prince Eugène, were charged with the negotiations. Quote, I arrived at Rastatt on the 26th of November in the afternoon, writes Villars in his memoir, and the Prince of Savoy half an hour after me. The moment I knew he was in the courtyard, I went to the top of the steps to meet him, apologizing to him on the ground that a lame man could not go down. We embraced with the feelings of an old and true friendship, which long wars and various engagements had not altered. The two plenipotentiaries were headstrong in their discussions. Quote, if we begin war again, said Villars, where will you find money? Quote, it is true that we haven't any, rejoined the prince, but there is still some in the empire. Quote, Poor states of the empire, I exclaimed, your advice is not asked about beginning the dance, yet you must of course follow the leaders. Peace was at last signed on the 6th of March, 1714. France kept Landau and Fort Louis. She restored Spire, Brissach, and Fribourg. The emperor refused to recognize Philip V, but he accepted the status quo. The crown of Spain remained definitively with the house of Bourbon. It had cost men and millions enough. For an instant the very foundations of order in Europe had seemed to be upset. The old French monarchy had been threatened. It had recovered of itself and by its own resources, sustaining single-handed the struggle which was pulling down all Europe in coalition against it. It had obtained conditions which restored its frontiers to the limits of the Peace of Reiswick. But it was exhausted, gasping, at wit's end for men and money absolute power had obtained from national pride the last possible efforts but it had played itself out in the struggle the confidence of the country was shaken it had been seen what dangers the will of a single man had made the nation incur the tempest was already gathering within men's souls the habit of respect the memory of past glories the personal majesty of louis the fourteenth still kept up about the aged king the deceitful appearances of uncontested power and sovereign authority the long decadence of his great-grandson's reign was destined to complete its ruin. Quote, I loved war too much, was Louis XIV's confession on his deathbed. He had loved it madly and exclusively, but this fatal passion, which had ruined and corrupted France, had not at any rate remained infructuous. Louis XIV had the good fortune to profit by the efforts of his predecessors, as well as of his own servants. 
Richelieu and Mazarin, Condé and Turenne, Luxembourg, Catina, Vauban, Villars, and Louvois all toiled at the same work. Under his reign, France was intoxicated with excess of the pride of conquest, but she did not lose all its fruits. She witnessed the conclusion of five pieces, mostly glorious, the last sadly honorable. All tended to consolidate the unity and power of the kingdom. It is to the treaties of the Pyrenees, of Westphalia, of Nijmegen, of Reiswick, and of Utrecht, all signed with the name of Louis the Fourteenth, that France owed Roussillon, Artois, Alsace, Flanders, and Franche-Comté. Her glory has more than once cost her dear. It has never been worth so much and such sordid increment to her territory. End of section fifty five. End of chapter forty five.